welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk all things movies. My name is Connor. I am joined today by Dave and by Christine. Uh, Sam is off saving the world. And so, you know, we don't have the ability to do that. So we're just sitting down to record today to talk about uh, one of my favorite Netflix original movies and continuing this trend of horror, spooky movies. We never really settled on, I think, a specific angle to take a look at horror movies, which is fine because there are so many horror movies that um, we all love and could talk about forever. But before we dive into my pick for this week, just wanted to give a shout out to the Movie John podcast network. Uh, we just did a wonderful episode last week uh, with uh, Disney Deviants, Adeze, one of the co-stars there. Um, it was a really thoughtful and wonderful discussion. Our first ever Movie John collaboration. So Christine, you were actually just on their Halloween Town episode uh, mm-hmm. two weeks ago, I believe. Yeah, and it was a blast. Check it out, as well as other Disney Deviance episodes, because they are absolutely wonderful. And be sure to check out the rest of the podcasts in the Movie John Podcast Network. Um, also want to highlight Killer Bees with former Butter With That co-host Tori and her partner Garrett, talking about um, really wonderful B-movie stars. So, not B-movie, the the movie with you know Jerry Seinfeld, but B-movie, you know. It's not about bees! I heard that Seinfeld brought up B-Movie, like, recently uh, in, like, an interview and, like, apologized for its uh, sexual overtones. And it was, he acted as if, well, he was like, ah, you know, I recognize that it's about a bee who's, like, trying to have sex with a woman or, like, a human. (laughs) (laughs) And it, like, it sounded like he was addressing this as if coming to the realization that that was an aspect of the plot for the very first time, which I find it hard to believe. And he was, like, very apologetic but probably not in a sincere way since it's Seinfeld. <laughs> Interesting that Jerry Seinfeld would comment on that movie all these years later. Uh, so I guess uh, talking about movies, let's transition to our what have we been watching segment. Uh, Dave or Christine, have you guys in the past days or weeks watching anything new, notable, interesting, surprising, or comforting? Or not comforting? A very surprising thing I watched recently and surprising in that I really enjoyed it, was I watched uh, Knight Rider starring Nicolas Cage. The famous Nicolas Cage. The famous Nicolas Cage. And I thought it was absolutely wonderful. It has, the, I mean, it's a, technically a Marvel movie, but like before the, the like Marvel takeover starting, you know, 2011 or 2010, because I think the night, this Knight Rider is like, Maybe 2008 or so. You mean Ghost Rider? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did I say... Did I <laughs> Knight say... Rider. Oh, my God. Excuse me. I don't even fucking know the name of the movie. Knight Rider. Jesus. Ghost Rider. Is that what the, is that what the title is? Ghost mm-hmm. Rider. Okay. Excuse me, folks, for fans out there. Um, I fucked it up. But I'll say that although I don't know the name of this movie, I really loved it because it was... Uh, quite, I would say, an uncharacteristically subdued performance from Nicolas Cage in, I think, a really effective way. You see him in his sort of regular life after he's made the deal with the devil where he's going to, like, turn into flames. You see him engaging in his regular life, and he's quite just a, you know, kind of an understated uh, stunt motorcycle rider. And then it's only when he's transforming into a skull in a ball of flames that he really pulls out all the Nicolas (laughs) Cage stops. 
And yeah, there's some like bad looking CGI in there, but for the most part, I thought it was just such an odd blend of like, of like adrenaline, like motorcycle adrenaline, fire adrenaline, but then they shove a Twilight movie in there with like the demons and the like the the particular Twilight hues and colors. And I was just like, I don't think this movie would ever be made today. And I, and I, as a Marvel movie, and I really love it for that reason. And Nick, Nick Cage is looking fucking good. I know there's the big debate about whether the greased up abs are really his. Who knows? I don't care. I thought, I don't know. I was really into it. And then I uh, had the uh, displeasure of watching half of the second one, and that was garbage. It was so bad, it was almost conceptual. But um, I'll say the first the first one is quite quite fun. I always, when I think of Ghost Rider, that movie, I think about uh, Best Buy circa 2008 and nine, because I feel like that movie was always on at the Best Buy near our house, like an entertainment area of like, look at the graphical fidelity of these new TVs or the audio system. And for some reason, I don't know, I don't know who makes these deals. I assume it's Marvel with Best Buy Corporate. I don't know, but it was like, I feel like always on for like months and months. So I would see various scenes and snippets. And then one night my mom and I decided to just rent the movie since we felt like we've seen a good amount of it over the course of like 12 months. And Sam Elliott is in it too. And he's so great. He, he lifts every movie, but the movie didn't have to be lifted. It was great. Well, I suppose on the track of twilight being uh, brought up, I'm sorry, Sam's not here to share that with us. Um, I did see, I haven't seen a lot recently because things have been a little bit hectic, but I did sit down to the newly released, the Batman trailer, the upcoming Matt Reeves film with a twilight star, uh, Robert Pattinson. And um, obviously Paul Danu, we got, um, what's his name? Uh, Colin Farrell in the mix. So it seems like there's going to be a lot of uh, pretty intense stuff going on. This new trailer makes it look like super gritty and very complicated. It seems like there's going to be a lot of through lines throughout this this movie, but also maintaining kind of a grittiness to it. It looks like it's a very kind of emotionally and violently unhinged Bruce Wayne slash Batman, which is something I always thought was an interesting idea. So I'm really looking forward to that movie, but we have to wait till March of next year. But until then, I think that trailer is going to hold me over just fine. The addition of the article just makes me lol. The Batman. That just doesn't roll off the tongue. (laughs) It's either that or the recently established The Bat of Gotham in uh, the Snyder version. So I'll take The Batman between the two. I'm so happy you brought that trailer up. Um, I don't, I really liked Matt Reeves' second new Planet of the Apes movie of Carrie Russell. I thought that film was fantastic in what could have been a not so great film. You know, I, the idea of like a new Planet of the Apes movie might not work. Thought that film was fantastic. Uh, love Robert Pattinson. And I love, hopefully, we'll get like a detective story with Batman. Uh, that's not something that we've really seen too much because, you know, in the comics, he's supposed to be the world's greatest detective. So with the Riddler, I hope they lean into that element. Big Paul Dano fan. Hopefully he gets to chew up a lot of scenery and they've been holding him back from the first, I guess, three, two and a half trailers. So hopefully they're leaving, you know, a lot of screen time for him and that'll be a nice surprise, I hope. Also some nice delivery, even in the trailer, the uh, whole um, what's what's black and blue and dead all over <sighs> you. <laughs> Just like guts, yeah, he's got some characterization to it, even in the trailer. So I think it's going to be neat. Yeah, I hope I um, definitely want to try to see that one in theaters. I haven't been watching a whole lot aside from sort of the two TV staples I think I might have brought up before, 
Um, still making my way through Squid Game with some friends. Um, a particularly emotional six episode. Um, so I'm still a fan of that. Can't wait to see how it concludes. I haven't really heard any negative reactions to the ending. So I feel like if it was a bad ending, people would be talking about it. Um, so I'm excited to see how it concludes. And then uh, Alyssa, my wife, and I have been going through 30 Rock from the beginning. Um, I've seen most of it in like high school, like middle school going into high school. Um, and Alyssa's seen parts of it here or there, I think, maybe more. But revisiting it in 2021 is interesting because it's like a nice little so apologies if I mentioned this before on air, little time capsule of like 2008 SNL humor, like Tina Fey at her, at her, you know, height. Um, Cause there are some episodes where I'm just like dying with laughter. And then other ones where I'm like, Oh, that can't be written about today or shouldn't be at all. Uh, so it's just a really interesting time capsule of mid two thousands NBC comedy with more hits than misses in my opinion. Yeah. Good job for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. I, can't stand Alec Baldwin as a public figure, but him and Tina Fey have such awesome chemistry together on that show. All right. Well, with, you know, we've talked about what we're watching. Let's continue our horror month. So when thinking about horror movies to discuss, it's always, you know, this is always a tough genre personally for me to pick movies from. And one that came to mind was 2016's Hush. Uh, a Netflix film, which we're going to be diving deep into today. And it's kind of appropriate that I think we're talking about this, um, you know, in the fall of 2021, because Mike Flanagan uh, just released a brand new Netflix show. I believe it's just a miniseries called Midnight Mass. And before sort of starting to do research about Hush, I had no idea that Mike Flanagan was responsible for this film. Uh, I first saw Hush in, I guess, May of 2016. And it was the first movie that Alyssa and I watched in our first apartment by ourselves. So kind of a spooky home invasion movie to watch on your first night as quote unquote adults in the quote unquote real world. Um, So this movie will kind of always have a special place in my heart. And I was interested to revisit it because I don't think I've seen it since 2016 when it came out. Um, So I'm really excited to kind of dive into my thoughts of what I think still works and then some questions that I have about Hush. Um, But before we get into, you know, kind of all that, let me just give a brief synopsis of the film in case you haven't seen it, those listening. Uh, Taking place over the course of one evening in one house, a famous deaf author, uh, Maddie Young, played by Kate Siegel, uh, fights for her life in a home invasion after her neighbor, neighbor, Sarah, played by Samantha Sloyan, uh, unintentionally leads the man, played by John Gallagher Jr., uh, to her kitchen door while he is attempting to kill Sarah. Uh, realizing that Siegel is deaf, he terrorizes her, uh, ultimately leading to a final and bloody confrontation. Uh, it was released on April 6, 2016, on Netflix, had a budget of about $1 million, directed and edited by Mike Flanagan and Get into him in a second. Uh, it was also written by Flanagan and Kate Siegel, who's his wife. And uh, this was produced by Jason Blum as well. So talking about a Blumhouse movie. Uh, Mike Flanagan is sort of, you know, he's been responsible for so, so much of recent horror favorites, including Oculus, uh, 
uh, Gerald's Game, which I think is my favorite Stephen King adaptation, um, and Doctor Sleep as well, which I know a few of us on the podcast enjoyed. He's also made for Netflix the shows The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, which also star Siegel, uh, and also the new show that I mentioned, Midnight Mass, which actually I didn't realize this. Um, is the book that Maddie most recently wrote in the universe of Hush, which I thought was kind of a funny connection. So that's just sort of um, an overview of Hush. Uh, Dave or Christine, have you guys seen Hush before this episode? Never. This is my first time. First oh, nice. time as well. Oh, excellent. I feel like it's it's interesting when the host is the only one who's seen it for the first time. It doesn't <laughs> happen frequently. Um so I guess let's just kind of dive right in. Um, a home invasion movie, one that I think is done pretty successfully. Some interesting twists on that idea. And I think also the fact that it's covered in one night is pretty compelling as well. Um, but what are you guys' initial reactions to Hush? What are some things that you liked about it? What were some kind of standout moments? How did you feel about Hush? So I thought uh, I thought it features a pretty strong performance from Kate Siegel. I thought that she conveyed like strength and resolve, uh, but also conveyed sort of realistic responses to physical pain and fear. And I was like, okay, I definitely totally believe that she could survive this ordeal. And I, and I think that Siegel's, as we see her endure, like all of this uh, intense uh, trauma and like threats on her life and being shot at with a cross, but you know, all of these things that she has to, these challenges she has to deal with. Like I thought the, the performance was really great at like both conveying pain, but also, as I said, strength and resolve. And so definitely felt it felt, yeah, that believable in the, within the setup of the movie. I think ultimately the film kind of left me feeling pretty detached from like what was going on mostly because I felt like the masked or the man, I guess, so the character is just called the man, mm -hmm. was so, like, absurdly motivationless that, like, I feel like I couldn't totally take the movie seriously, even though the tone of the movie is so, self, like, so self-serious. Because I feel like there's a way to pull off, like, a motivationless villain. I mean, you have that in so many classic horror movies. But... I think the movie is so serious that I was like, I need a little bit more. And I think, and you noted this, I think in your notes as well, Connor, like that question of like, do we need to know why the man is doing this? And I felt like I, in another movie, I might not care, but I feel like in the tone that this movie sets up, I, I was just like, I wanted a little more from, from that, from that dynamic. But I thought the movie was, as far as being a streamlined and quite simple premise, I thought it definitely gave me some some really effective jump scares and especially as the camera pans across the windows and you constantly see the man from out, like outside, I thought there were definitely some really compelling moments there where I was like going through all of the situations that I, or like all of the things that I would be trying to do if I was put in that situation. It reminded me, I love all the points you brought up, Christine, and I think we'll definitely dive into all of them. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of some similarities to It Follows, last week's movie we talked about. We were sort of like, oh, is the man over here? Is he in this one? Like, when is he going to sort of pop up? So I think it also, that was just an interesting comparison uh, to a film we talked about last week. 
Dave, what did you think about Hush? Yeah, I've never seen it before and um, uh, a little bit familiar with Flanagan's TV stuff, like this stuff that uh, he's had on Netflix, the uh, Hill House series and a little bit of Blind Manor, uh, which I appreciated in moments. I thought it was interesting. Um, and I think it it allows him a little bit more time to breathe than does a movie. And I think this movie incorporates that uh, for about an hour of its like hour and change runtime. It's like an 80 minute movie. Mm -hmm. uh, then it does something very satisfyingly surprising, but also simultaneously frustrating for about 45 seconds. And then becomes a movie that I, uh, the kind of movie that I don't really enjoy when it dives into his third act. Um, on the whole, I, I would say that, uh, I, I did not enjoy the movie. Uh, I would say well, maybe less than neutral. I kind of disliked it, but that having been said, uh, it's not for like punchy reasons. I, I think it's just a, the kind of movie that doesn't really work for me in several of its tones. Um, so I'm not going to say all that much. I'm going to jump in here or there, but mostly I'm interested, Connor, in hearing, uh, what drew this, uh, to your attention and why it was, uh, why it made such an impact. Those are really great points to bring up. And I'm glad that we're talking about tone because I feel like this movie could have a little home alone vibes, could have a little comedy, like it's tough to, and I think kind of looking into the production history, um, there's not a whole lot out there, but it was just interesting to get glimpses into why some choices were made. Um, so the film you know, was developed by Flanagan and Siegel together. They married in 2016. Uh, and Flanagan was interested in making a horror movie without dialogue, but he had a hard time finding a way to build tension and suspense uh, with absolutely no dialogue. And so you know, the script sort of shifted during pre-production. Um, and he also thought that audiences in 2015 and 2016 uh, would find a near silent film boring and look for other things to watch is more or less what he said in an interview. And so just based off of that, I would love to know his thoughts on 2018's A Quiet Place, uh, which is also a sort of another notable movie without much dialogue. And so I think in 2016, I appreciated this movie as this sort of, and experimental is not the right word, but this idea of like, I haven't really seen quite a whole lot like it. Um, with, we have this protagonist who cannot hear. She developed a sickness, um, an infection when she was 13. So she cannot hear, she cannot speak. And so trying to survive this um, ordeal. And so I just remember back then kind of being taken away with like the suspense and the tension that's being built. And I feel like a lot of that is still pretty effective. But now in 2021, I'm thinking more about character motivation or there's other parts of the film that now seeing it a second time. And I have, I have some questions about, especially the man. Uh, have we, we've talked about quite a few movies in the past couple months where the man was like a character's name, correct? Unhinged, yeah. Unhinged, like I just feel like recent, like this has kind of been coming up. So I think oh, this movie- cool, of course. Quite cool. <laughs> that one, sorry. So I feel like whether films we've talked about or you know, through the podcast or what we've talked about, we've been watching this for me, it was just kind of a theme that was coming up. And I think Flanagan leans on some kind of horror cliches, which I think maybe don't hold up as well, especially the ending. Don't quite know how I feel about the very end of the movie. But what I really enjoyed was the use of, the minimal use of, I guess, like the setting of how making the most of what they had. And they only had a million dollars which in movie language is extremely cheap. Um, they had one house. They had a hard time finding the right house because they actually based the script off of their own home where Siegel and Flanagan lived. And so when they went to actually start filming, 
they had a really hard time in Alabama finding the house that, you know, I guess had a loft and that kind of bathroom and that kind of kitchen. And the script is mostly stage directions. There's only 15 minutes of dialogue in the roughly 80 minute movie. So I can imagine the frustrations they found when they were scouting locations and couldn't find something that had all of these rooms, probably in the order that, you know, these things need to happen, access to a roof, gutters that they can climb on, all of these things that are very specific and probably were in the script for a long time. That was a funny thing that I, it's, it was a weird jokey kind of thought that's a little bit blue, but in my head, as I was watching this movie for the first time, there was definitely a moment where I thought to myself, like, you know, Siegel and Flanagan are uh, a married couple. Uh, they both wrote and directed, or well, both wrote this film. He directed it. She stars in it. And there was definitely a point where I thought, like, I bet these two are really into role play. And like, it's just a joke. But then I watched, then I watched an interview this morning about Hush and the production of it. And apparently when they were living in, I think it's, it's Glenn, Glendale at the time, they would do a thing where Mike Flanagan would wander around the outside of the house, trying to find ways to break in. And she would watch from the inside. <laughs> And I was just oh like, my god that is the best thing i've ever like, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're perfectly nice people but if i'm invited to their summer home it's a it's a polite but firm no thanks to the invitation have you guys ever seen that movie the, the invitation mm-hmm. that's what i'm thinking of now <laughs> but yeah just um, an interesting tidbit but it's interesting too because like it does feel as though there's a lot of acuity and attention to uh, the detail and layout of the environment they're in specifically restricted to this house, which I think is something he's explored a lot. I mean, if you watch the Netflix series is that is the, the location is really central to what's going on a lot of the time. Uh, so I think he likes to nest in sets in a way that I, I think is a strength of the movie. And I think simplicity is one of this movie's strengths. And the fact that it's 80 minutes is also a strength that it sort of gets to where it needs to go. There's nice setup for longtime listeners or even, not so long time listeners of butter with that. I'm a guy who enjoys structure and setup. We see the fire alarm. We see these things. They're set up early. Um, and then they come back and pay off in some pretty satisfying ways. Um, so I was sort of in, kind of enjoying all the setup as well. And some of the work being done in the scripts and also thinking about like appreciating within this movie's reality, the realism that existed of how this movie is not precious with his characters. Um, we see people get maimed, mangled, brutalized, killed in pretty horrific ways. Um, that, you know, for me kind of feels like, like refreshing to see and something that, you know, a home invasion's pretty terrifying. Somebody stalking outside of your home and where they have a crossbow and you never know, you know, it's not like a loud gun. So you never know if you reach one hand out, you'll get shot. And so we see moments where people's fingers get jammed in windows. There's a pretty graphic scene where, uh, Siegel's hand as she's like trying to retract for the end of the movie. He stomps on it, stomps on it, breaking her wrist, breaking her fingers. It's not like doesn't focus on the gore of it, but the idea of like that there are, it feels like there are real consequences for Siegel, you know, Maddie, her character, if she tries to go outside and trying to come up with some creative solutions that sometimes feel a little home alone. <laughs> um, but I think I found sort of pretty effective and sort of engrossing me in the movie of interested in how is this going to play out, like in a very, I think plot enjoyable way of how's this going to play out. Oh, this character arrived. What's going to happen now? Oh, he's dead. So I think it was a fun ride. I don't know if I have thoughts about like deeper meditations on the, you know, 
uh, disability community. I don't think the movie's concerned with that or the sort of, you know, what's the motivation of John? Is he a serial killer? He seems to hunt people. So I don't know how deep this movie goes, but on a surface level, I loved, I really enjoyed the ride uh, that it took me on throughout this home invasion story. Yeah, I'd have to say I, I disagree with almost all of those of those points personally. Um, I mean, I, I just think that um, as as concerns the violence, I think it is um, excessive uh, for me, um, especially given the tone of this movie. I understand that it's serious and is illustrating the gravity of the situation and the peril these people are in. But for that to become sort of like an almost like Eli Roth-esque battering um, especially when it becomes the two of them at the end, the third act, where it's this kind of two-hander, it's almost a boxing match where you want to call it because they're just cut up and bleeding all over the place. It's like too much blow by blow and you feel the weight of every individual blow. And it just felt like off-putting and smothering after a movie that was built around more atmospheric tension. Um, so I found the end to be, I, I was pretty grossed out by it. Not Not like morally, but I was just like squirming in a way that I'm comfortable with gore in a movie that apportions it properly but it felt like it was all of a sudden this is like yeah like a hostile movie in terms of its violence i do also think that that the the character motivations are pretty underbaked um or underdeveloped i think that there's um this is this is a movie that is it, for me like a mountain of missed opportunities i just think like um in the way that it, it pursues realism with this character just being the man we lose out on a lot of substance as far as what is going on as far as his motivation we come to understand like you know he's it's about the thrill of the hunt and a cat and mouse game where he's toying with his victim and psychologically torturing them before finally making the final blow but we don't really know that out we have to assume that because there's really no other establishing context for who this man is other than a few notches he's carved onto his crossbow, him killing someone at the beginning of the movie. And I also think it would have been a better movie if no one else was killed. I think it would have been way more interesting and way more taut if it was just the two of them, because I know those characters are going to die. Like they're, they're not going to stop this. This is a confrontation between written, a confrontation between two characters who really don't know each other, which is also kind of a problem, but I know it's going to end that way. So all the other characters are just, I'm I'm waiting for them to be killed. It's not really a shock at any point. Yeah, I guess the scene where the boyfriend of the neighbor who's already killed might have been put in there to somehow reveal another layer of the man because there's extensive dialogue. I mean, in extensive relative to the rest of the amount of dialogue in the, the movie. 15 minutes that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like, it might've been a choice to, to like put the man in a position to have to like talk to somebody else. And maybe you're getting a little bit of like, Oh, well, you know, there's, you know, two men sizing up each other, trying to figure out who would win in this conflict. Like maybe the, maybe the, uh, John Gallagher Jr.'s character, the man, is like stupid, like or maybe he's an idiot or maybe he likes to pretend like he's an idiot and then is actually wilier than you think he is. But I didn't really learn anything more by that interaction. And I think that interaction with the boyfriend left me even more confused <laughs> as to what we're supposed to glean and understand from the man. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. The one thing I, I wanted to comment on was the production note that you mentioned, Connor, that Flanagan and Siegel had been thinking about this movie and wanting 
little to no dialogue, but decided, correct me if I'm repeating what you said wrong, uh, that they later decided that having a character that was deaf would accomplish that or like would better set up that premise. Is that, is that what the note that you were mentioning before? So it sounds like the having a deaf character was a vehicle to allow a movie to exist with no dialogue. So, and yeah, so, I, and so it sounds like in the script writing phase, they added more like not as they were getting closer to filming. Like, it sounds like when they were getting, when they were getting ready to actually film, like, they already set up kind of like who's going to be talking and this character, the man. And so I just think it's an also interesting example of what would this movie would have looked like if they leaned way further into something like a quiet place, which does have dialogue, but I think one that I think more effectively utilizes the weapon of silence in a theater. Yeah. I, and I, I think that kind of like connects like now hearing that production note, I think underscores something I had sort of felt, not great about through the movie, which was like using deafness as purely device. And the movie doesn't seem like that interested. I maybe aside from the opening 10 minutes of like exploring Maddie, Maddie's experience and the more complexities of her character. And so, yeah, I, I, it, it now makes sense that like in the conversations of developing this character, it was more, okay, presenting a deaf character will ultimately uh, help us achieve a means of not having dialogue in a movie, which I, I don't know if it's, that's a great way to approach. And I don't want to sp- like speak for them. That was just my yeah, interpretation yeah, yeah. of it. So maybe there was something bigger that in an interview I missed, but that seemed to be the impetus for having a character who could not hear. Yeah. I think it's a movie that doesn't have the competence to see that premise through. I mean, I think that's why we get, we only get 15 minutes of dialogue, but it's why we have this person that, the the man, this character, this menace that we don't really know anything about become to, to an extent non-anonymous. Like it's why he, to a degree, why he takes off his mask. I mean, I think that that's obviously to illustrate that he is, it's not about her, not not seeing his face and not telling the police he's going to kill her either way and taking it off but i i think that's also they felt that like well we need to have someone that can talk and verbally emote and communicate throughout this movie because otherwise we're nervous about how it's going to play out in that regard um i also think that as far as the its approach to representation when it comes to people who are deaf I, i think maddie is definitely I think they approached it rather than as a person who is deaf. She is a deaf person. Like her, her deafness is kind of her establishing characteristic. We don't come to know much about her either. Um, other than that, she's a horror writer and a thriller writer, which informs her kind of like survival mode when, when in this dangerous scenario, which is a really cool thread that I would have like seen developed more, especially because, and like, I feel like it's so easy to fix. If this guy that we know nothing about is instead like a rabid fan, then then it's not only her that, you know, as a horror writer uh, and as a celebrity, which would draw him to her for some reason, she she has this knowledge, breadth of knowledge of how to survive these scenarios. But then so does he, because he's her reader. It kind of, they're, they're on equal mm-hmm. footing, they're equally matched. And in that sense, you can build some tension as opposed to a guy who's just going to kind of like this menacing figure we don't learn anything about who takes his mask off. It's like, you might as well have had him wear it if who he is doesn't matter. 
or it's you don't trust the script you've written so you need to have him be a vocal character I love the theory of the rabid fan then being the killer. Uh, I also, before we meet the boyfriend, I was like, oh, maybe this is John. Like, maybe Maddie has never met her neighbor's boyfriend, and it turns out that he's like a serial killer with a crossbow. And I was like, this would be a very interesting choice. It's like, he's just killed Sarah or whatever the the neighbor's name is. And then he's like runs to the neighbor's house to kill Maddie. (laughs) That's sort of the thing that frustrates me is like, I know they were going for realism. So the anonymity is important, but I feel like anything else would have been more interesting for the man. I think it's an, Sometimes movies that have me asking questions frustrate me. And I feel like this is one where I think it kind of intrigues me. And this is probably just a personal Connor thing that cannot apply to any other person who enjoys watching movies. But I just, this one kind of just felt like it had a million dollar budget. They shot in 18 days. They only have like four characters, five, four, four. Um, and so I just think it is interesting of like, what did they want to accomplish and what worked and what didn't work? I really love that kind of build up to the third act, especially when she says, um, like do it coward writes in the, um, lipstick. And then he like, comes have her sort of like roar moment. And Oh, it's not even lipstick. It's her own blood. Oh, right. That one's her own blood. She dips her finger into her wound and writes on the wall with the blood from her wound. That was really uh, badass. I have this ongoing um, tally with my friend about how many times somebody either sticks a finger in a wound to make it hurt more or anyhow, we have an ongoing tally of like finger in wound uh, like moments. You're spending too much time with the Flanagan's. And I guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess we need, yeah, I need to watch some more of that because it's always like a bullet, whatever. And so I added that one to the tally and have to text her about it and be like, I have one more for our list. There's two in that one, actually, because later on in the struggle, she digs her, uh, her hand into one of his arrow wounds. Oh, I missed that. Okay. Two hatches, yeah, two hatches for my <laughs> finger and wound uh, tally. Much like the man's crossbow itself. Mm, yes. That was another thing. It was like, okay, we just are to assume that's his kills or those are his kills or whatever. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's safe to assume that this is not his first rodeo hunting people. And I think. And yeah, I, I can respect also like his tenacity to a degree, but. Like that he is sort of like a fixed figure and this is about her pain and it will go on for as long as he likes. I think that's that's an interesting idea, but not the sort of uh, horror that I'm drawn to, I guess. So is this movie, I don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. I, it's just maybe one that's not for me, I guess, is more resoundingly where I came off with it. Um, now I'm really wanting a movie that's like a meta hush that now that ever since Dave, you said... Uh, that you had watched this interview with Siegel and Flanagan about like their like role playing exercises. Honey, so someone's breaking into the Flanagan's house. Oh, never mind. I, They're making a movie. <laughs> Dave, I think I think that this movie has to be made now. That would be like a director and co-writer are like role playing and then. <laughs> Suddenly shit gets crazy and it turns out that they really are in like a home of invasion story. I think that could be a hilarious and then it'll have some sort of like meta comedy in there too. 
or maybe it's already been done. I don't know, but that's, that's the hush I would love to see. <laughs> Actually, really quickly, the hush that I would love to see, because there was one sequence that I thought was really interesting, was when she's uh, wounded, she's bleeding out in the, the kitchen, and she begins running through, and we, we see little snippets, these little vignetted scenarios where she's like, okay, maybe I can run out of the house this way. And every time she's battered or killed by the man. I think that's your movie. I think if you make that movie... <laughs> Uh, that could be very cool um, and really, really hold my attention more than maybe the first act of this movie uh, did. But I also did have a problem with that sequence, too, where like where where she's she says early on when she's having this conversation with her neighbor, uh, like, how do you write your books? How do you come up with all these clever ways of like getting out of these scenarios? She says, well, I hear my mother's voice. But then when all this is going on, it's just a version of her sitting next to her that can speak. And like, I understand that, like, you know, it, it feels weird because like. It's almost like this movie didn't think that people who are deaf have an interior monologue, so they have to imagine like a version of themselves that speaks. Like, why wasn't it her mother telling her that? You know what I mean? I agree I with that. that. And that was, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with that, Dave. And that seems like in the writing room, I can imagine that, that sequence being there more and then it feeling like it's too much. But I think if that was like, if it happened like, she talks about it once. We see it earlier and it's introduced because you could have had that scene where, oh, I can just let me just run out the door while he's distracted or I do the alarm. Like when she hits the car alarm and he runs over, it's like, oh, this is a great time for me to run out of the house. Like that's when that fake out could have happened. And then you see a few ones and then it could be brought up later. So I was surprised that her writerliness, which, you know, was not did not come up a whole lot. There's a cool moment where she's like, he's about to break in. He's like died fighting male five, nine. Like there's some cool moments. Um, and I just wish it was a little more like leaned into like, as a very imaginative writer, I wish it leaned into that kind of more fantastical element a little more instead of just kind of throwing it into the third act, which worked, but could have worked, would have been a stronger choice if it was more part of the backbone of the film. I mean, I agree with the idea of if you're going to go that route, maybe incorporate it more throughout. I didn't think that scene worked. I thought quite jar jarring, uh, to like tonally and yeah, big time. didn't I trust your that. audience enough because if the objective is to sustain tension in an, it, in its sort of simple narrative, then just continue to do that. And I, and I, and I was pretty in, invested in the action through through most of it. And then that moment was like, you're. I think you're doing a disservice to the character by like having that vocalized inner monologue. And it was distracting, to at least to me. And then it's just, yeah. But I like the idea of having it, if it, they were going to go that route, your, your guy's idea of having it incorporated. I suppose, I mean, it would be an entirely different movie because this movie doesn't seek to, it seeks such a serious tone up to then, then has that stylistic, heavily stylized interruption, that like little interstitial interlude there between that we've talked about. And then it goes into the full took gore. So if it were peppered throughout, it might've been more consistent, but at the same time, beyond a certain point, if your movie is writing fake outs, then like, you know, it's, you're, you're kind of writing yourself a version, a horror version of like Edge of Tomorrow or something. I, I I see why this movie chose for it to be just that one flash of it, given the dominant tone they're going for. But I guess I would have just personally 
for the alternative. And also, if you have lots, if you have, and this was what I was thinking, you know, kind of just thinking about in my notes and our conversations now, if she's talking to herself, why not have her be a, a character who can speak? Like if that's, and then if you're going to rely so on it. So I wonder if that was thing. part of the. That, that's kind of the idea is like this, that was like that writing room. Oh, let's create a deaf character like purely for device reasons, which then I think to your point, Connor, why not just have continued to like be able, or I guess, I guess, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And it speaks to me a little bit too, of some other movies, like, uh, you know, you have your, a quiet place where it does build a world around that. Like the world itself is reflective of the, the, the presence of silence. Um, but then there, yeah, kind of have movies like these or movies like, um, your, your don't, what is it? Don't breathes where it's there, there is a difference between representation and gimmick. And I, yeah, again, again, I think this movie kind of falls into the latter camp, not in a way that's necessarily distasteful, but, um, doesn't hit the mark that it thinks it is. One thing I will say is that I really, really, and I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but I really, really liked uh, a lot of the use of just like windows and w- seeing bodies move back and forth across like a window frame. And I, you, Connor, you had brought up it like connections to It Follows as well, like earlier. And I, I just as we talked about the effective frames where like some random person is walking in the horizon and it follows, I thought that there were some really wonderful moments where you're watching Maddie, but you're always looking out for movement through those glass windows, the glass doors. And I thought that set up tension really, really well. And there's some, they're not total 360 pans, but there's some nice sweeping camera moments where you're like, ah, this house has way too many windows. This is terrifying. And I think that it it, it really captures space uh, really well. Especially as it's in your notes, Connor, when we do finally get the big confrontation when she's, you know, she's figured out like, okay, there's only one scenario he doesn't suspect and that's me allowing him in so I can kill him. And her retreating to the bathroom and, um, you know, knowing that there are windows everywhere, that there's really no safe space in her house, seeing her like facing the door, this like nice tension. And then silently we see from behind in, in like out of the depth of field. So it's just a blurred figure, but we see him drop down from through the window into the bathroom that she's in. Uh, like fucking Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what or like the Apollo's is, thing on the roof somehow. Yeah. Is, is, and then you, it is out of, you know, out of focus. And you just see this like reflection. You're like, is it snow? Like what, like, it's not snow. What is it? And then in you the realize curtain, right. Yeah. And then you see glass falling down and then you see him kind of slowly oh, get down. I didn't even catch the glass. That's pretty great. Yeah. So that was, so that was, uh, I assume him breaking the skylight because there's a skylight above right. the toilet, which is why the toilet's weirdly in the center of the room with <laughs> cabinets next to it. So I guess it's a front entrance toilet. This is something we were talking about, not understanding the logistics of the tub. Oh, sorry, not the toilet, the tub, the bathtub. Mm-hmm. It's like in the middle and like, how do you, anyway. And so, yeah, the light, the moonlight reflecting off of glass falling. I that's, thought was, okay, that's very cool. That's, was I thought a it was cool, a shower curtain, yeah. Now that was him breaking the skylight to come in. Like now he's like found the window to break in, the glass that's to break through. And I think Flanagan has a great eye. And I think his writing has improved as time has gone on. I think Hill House, I really think it's a, a pretty thoroughly excellent series. And so I think this is him 
and a little bit of experimenting things outside his norm. And I think we still kind of have a lot of those really great shots. And I think that um, bathtub one is a really excellent example. I'd also say Gallagher. It was a Gallagher Jr. I believe is his name for a performance for a character that is ostensibly not written beyond his thirst for uh, the sort of sadistic game. He, he does a good job. I think he really brings it to a very frightening reality, which up to the third act when it becomes extremely violent, I found really uh, interesting. But yeah, I guess it was inevitably going to get that violent, but I guess I enjoyed his performance up to then more. Uh, But yeah, the performance early on, I think he does a really good job, uh, even though I would have uh, liked to have known more about his character. But given the character that we get, I think he does a good job with it. And I think they could have drawn out the tension more with him as this masked figure. I forgot that he takes his mask off like literally three minutes of screen time after we first meet him. It's like three minutes of our like time. Passed. Minutes into the movie. Yeah. And I, I was like, interesting of like, how does he, I guess this could be comical. I think this is when like, what are the pitfalls of setting up a movie this way of when he enters her home and she's on FaceTime and he realizes like he could be seen the friend sees her and like the FaceTime in Maddie's like background as they're FaceTiming. And so I felt like I wish that there was a little more of this tension of there's somebody in your home and you don't know they're there. I think that was also maybe a missed opportunity of where I thought all that was pretty effectively done. But then also is that like, can that go on too long? Like, I think it's interesting of like the, the tensions they tried to build in different ways. Some of them, in my opinion, successful others, I think in the three of us opinion, not as successful. It makes it more, yeah, more uh, cliche for him to wear the mask for a majority of the movie. But yeah, I, I, if he's going to be a character that we don't learn much about, then a, I, I think a silent stalking menace that is unexpressive as opposed to um, as opposed to Maddie, a woman who is deaf, it would have just it would have created a, a good deal more tension. I don't know. I guess, like I said, I feel like they didn't have enough confidence in there not being that dialogue there. So I, I think if you went for like almost no dialogue and no other kills uh, and maybe a little bit more character development, that could have really gone a long way and i think then he could have worn the mask for longer even though i appreciate the gravity of him taking it off and the context in the movie yeah it works in that choice in that moment but Mm -hmm. i'm like what if like the what ifs that this movie inspires which we've been talking a lot about i think is what for me adds to what makes this movie interesting of it feels like there's a slate that they made some choices that are really interesting and that i thought would be kind of cool to discuss and think about as we have been doing for the past 40 minutes however long been going on for i think that i would be curious to see some other flanagan projects uh i guess i've seen dr sleep i think i had some similar antagonist motivation issues with dr sleep as well uh so maybe that's sort of my beginning budding relationship with flanagan as a creator and director but um yeah i i so what other project of his would you recommend as like a follow-up to this movie or um, having seen only me having only seen Dr. Sleep and Hush? As a follow-up to this one, I'm not sure about a specific follow-up. I would recommend Haunting of Hill House. I think that's a pretty excellent, outstanding series. Um, I haven't seen Oculus, but I know um, that's one of Alyssa's favorite horror movies. Uh, which Ooh, okay. was Kate that his Siegel. first movie? There was another one I never heard of that came out a few years before. I can look it up in a second. 
Uh, but that was probably his first, like, main one of his breakout kind of movies. So I'd recommend The Haunting of Hill House. I also really enjoyed The Haunting of Bly Manor. It's very different than Hill House. Um, I watched Bly Manor first, so I don't know if that's why I like that one in different ways um, than Hill House. I like that it's yeah it has these more mystical maybe elements. I'm not sure. And I've also heard wonderful things about and intense things about Midnight Mass. Um, so that's been on my list um, that I want to check out in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I know Sam was recommending that. And I would recommend Dr. Sleep. I, I, uh, I guess two years ago, almost a year and a half ago, Tori recommended the director's cut or director's edition of Dr. Sleep that it adds an extra like 30 minutes that fills in a lot of gaps with the theatrical release. I still haven't seen that. So the director's cut or whatever it's called of Dr. Sleep, I would also be interested in seeing. Yeah, I would I would like to see. So I'm assuming Kate Siegel is in more. Uh, I think almost all of his right. projects. Because, I, yeah, I I really uh, would like to see other things uh, she's been in uh, and see more of her work because uh, I had never heard of her and didn't re- even recognize her. And so, yeah, I, I think she's a great performer. I think she's especially good in uh, Haunting of Hill House. And I think it's in Hill House where flanagan maybe realizes fuller visions of filming inside of kind of one location and interesting some interesting camera work we see here there's this Mm -hmm. awesome one shot scene in the middle of um haunting of hill house that is just absolutely incredible and so i feel like this kind of feels like a lot of the setting up for some of the camera choices and i don't know if he edited haunting of hill house but he did edit um hush as well which i think is, is nicely paced generally i think well edited so yeah, I, would, I think I would recommend Hill House as if you were looking for your Flanagan fix outside of Hush and you haven't seen Hill House yet, that's the one I would go for. Cool. As we're sort of wrapping up, any final thoughts on Hush or anything you, you know, scenes you wanted to bring up or last kind of moments to talk about? I'm so happy they didn't kill the cat. I was like, when he pulls out his knife and he's like, oh, uh, you know, Who's your owner? Oh, I bet it's the lady inside. She's going to see you soon. Nailed to the fucking door. And I was like, no, no, no. I can't with this right now. (laughs) And the cat made it. I was so happy. (laughs) It does crawl up at the end. And my first thought was like, as as after all this has gone on, she's got this nice, like, white, long hair cat that sidles up next to her. And she starts petting it. But she's like covered in blood. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that, too. (laughs) One scene that I don't know how I feel about the ending of where she calls the cops. And then also there's like actual ways for like 911 dispatchers to communicate with people who are hard of hearing or cannot speak. So there's like, right. like the movies also like, how can she call the police if she can't hear or talk? It's they like even say that little, at one point when the neighbor shows up, it's like, well, she could have made that call. It's like, well, she totally could. She was doing that at the beginning of the movie yeah. before the power was shut off. <laughs> so I don't know. I, it, that feels like it goes a little bit beyond that character. Maybe like uh, filmmaking. I'm not sure. But the ending of where she calls the cops, she's bloodied. She sits on the steps. The cat curls up. You see the sirens appear, you know, the, the lights, and then they pull up in front. I, I can't think of lots of movies that have that, but I feel like there are lots of horror movies that end in a similar way. I know Samara Weaving's Ready or Not ends... Like a spoiler, but like, and you know, has a similar-ish kind of setup. And oh, sorry if I just spoiled that for anybody who hasn't <laughs> seen it. That was another one I was going to pick. Um, so that will definitely come down the pike in the future. Spoiler alert! But I think Ready or Not is a pretty fantastic, wacky act, uh, horror movie that just is kind of balls out, crazy mansion kind of horror movie. 
Um, and I just feel like that just feels just kind of rote sitting on the porch waiting and pulls up and then it ends. We see a little smirk on her face. I don't know how I, I feel like the ending left me a little, meh, okay. A little deflated. I mean, did you, did you want like more action? I, I kind of thought the ending sort of zipped it up quite nicely as in I was fearful that it was going to try to add some additional sort of sort of post log information or whatever. And I was like, I don't need anything more just fit, just end it. And so I kind of thought that ending did the trick. I guess just maybe something a little more ambiguous. Christine, we, oh, I feel like we've been talking about, Oh, Oh, I feel like this is absolutely not ambiguous of like, I don't know, maybe just like a character. I mean, we get her smile at the end. This is not a, a hugely like fully formed thought, but it just felt a little like, okay, cops up here. Okay. It's over. Like, I don't know. Maybe something, another character. Like, I just feel like I was missing a character beat at the end. It, it's maybe the only characterization we get for her other than that, as I yeah. said, she's, she's expressly a, a person who is deaf, um, is that she is struggling to finish writing a book that is, you know, like presumably sort of a survivor story and then having survived mm-hmm. it, you know, she's, uh, she's a little smile because like, Hey, I, I couldn't write it, but I did it. There's something, I don't know. Maybe I'm like being too hard. Maybe I'm being too hard on this ending, but for, for me, it just felt, I don't know, a little been there, done that way to end a horror movie like this, where a woman tries to survive a terrible situation. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'm I wrong. Disagree. But that's just kind of how I felt about the ending. I had, did I cover all my fun facts? Oh, I have one last piece of trivia that I thought was kind of interesting. So the filming was you know, there was a lot of discussion about how are they going to film this? How are they going to film the scenes that we sort of see from Maddie's perspective of where, you know, we can't, the audience doesn't hear because Maddie can't hear, kind of goes in and out. It's, you know, one of the techniques used in the film. So in order to properly film these scenes from Maddie's point of view, they didn't apparently record sound at all. It's all just video. And they added the muffled sounds in post and Siegel had to ADR her breathing. Um, in these scenes because, you know, as she's breathing, can't hear, but we can hear like her breathing. So that all had to be added in post um, voiceover. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of an interesting filmmaking tidbit for this film. The way that it does shift its use of sound in order to illustrate those those contrasts, I think is pretty effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, the overall, scenes where she's cooking, it, it like shifts suddenly where you are uh, – listening to the very, very close sounds of like chopping onions and the sizzling lamb roast or whatever she's cooking. And yeah, it kind of moves in and out of intensified sound, no sound, dulled sound. I can always appreciate a film too that kind of, in my, you know, tricks my brain into listening better or using a different part of my senses more acutely. Quiet Place does that pretty flawlessly from what I remember. And so I think this movie has just appreciated too, like a better appreciation for sound or picking up on cues or, you know, just being more aware of that, you know, sense that I have, which I think it does pretty well. I don't think it does too much with that later, but beginning of the movie kind of taps into a lot of that. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, Thank you so much, Dave and Christine. Um, It's always fun when uh, we disagree on certain parts of a movie. I think that always leads to, it doesn't happen all the time. And so I think it leads to super interesting discussions. Um, I would recommend Hush. I'd recommend most of what I've seen of Mike Flanagan's work. Um, and, you know, definitely Hill House, Fly Manor, Midnight Mass. Um, I assume Midnight Mass is good. 
it's got nothing but universal praise. So you can catch all those on Netflix. Uh, people also like Oculus. So I like Dr. Sleep. So I think definitely it's hard to go wrong with a Mike Flanagan film. And if anybody watches Hush, uh, I'd be very curious to hear what you think. And you can let us know at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us an email. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, former guest, uh, Lana, sent us a, an email. We read that through. So if you want your email read, send it to us, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, butterwiththat1 on Twitter. And also be sure to check out all of the other podcasts in the Movie John Network, which we highlighted at the beginning of the episode. And I also want to give a shout out to Witch Pass, podcast of all things witchy from friend of the show, um, Christina Rasha Schneider, and my wife, Alyssa Miller. Um, Alyssa, yeah, I'm feeding now. Uh, so she's been on the podcast before. Uh, so definitely recommend checking out Witch Path. Yes, it's the season, but it's always the season for witchcraft. So tune in always. Very true. Have a wonderful, have a, have a good whatever, wonderful whatever. What do we say these days? Have a good whatever. Have a whatever. Have a whatever, whatever. Have a whatever's your whatever. I just uh, love the evolution of language. <laughs> isn't that amazing? All right. Have a, have a good whatever you're listening to this, whenever. <laughs> and we'll catch you next week um, for a very different kind of horror movie uh, we have in store. Pretty, pretty different from Hush. So I'm excited to uh, talk about that. And I hope you are next week. Bye. Bye. So long.